CBS Radio's The New Sky. WOMC HD3 Detroit. WKHQ HD3 Seattle. WBMX HD3 Boston. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Do police officers encounter UFOs? Have officers ever been abducted? What's their take on the UFO phenomenon? Hello, friends, and welcome to the 191st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and opening today was my son, co-host, and partner in the paranormal, Ben. Well, let's get right to our guest, then. With over 21 years of police experience, Gary Hesseltine is a serving detective constable with the British Transport Police, his interest in UFOs stems from a childhood sighting in his hometown in Lincolnshire in 1975 when he was 15. He became an active researcher in late 2001 when he started work on the PRUFOs, uh, hopefully you'll correct me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, or uh, the acronym for Police Reporting UFO Sightings Database. After years of research, he has assembled well over 350 cases going back to 1901 and involving over 800 British police officers. The database launched publicly in the June 2002 issue of UFO Magazine. Gary became a regular contributor to the magazine and later started his own online magazine called UFOMonthly.com, which ran for 41 issues. Gary then became deputy director of UFO Data Magazine till that publication became a victim of the global economic crisis. Gary has appeared in over a dozen documentaries from UFO Hunters to Jane Goldman Investigates to the BBC and appears regularly in the regional and national press and on the radio in the UK and internationally. Of special interest to our Return to Rendlesham radio series listeners, Gary is collaborating with retired Colonel Charles Halt of Rendlesham Forest fame on a film script that Gary has written about the extraordinary events that took place there in 1980. He also is developing a UFO documentary TV series for Steadfast Television in London, and he is working on a book based on the Proofos database. He lectures regularly throughout the British Isles and in the U.S., including the National Press Club in Washington, where he was presented with the prestigious Disclosure Award by UFO expert Steve Bassett, who will be the guest on our New England Drive Time show on December 6th. Awesome. So, Gary Hesseltine, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. I'm honored to be a guest. Oh, we're honored to have you. Uh, okay, so Ben, uh, you're going to start us off with our questions. Oh, you bet I will. <laughs> so what, what's the chance that a uh, British police officer will encounter a UFO sometime in his slash her career? Well, realistically, it's uh, it's pretty pretty small when you think that there's probably some 200,000 British police officers working uh, in any one year, as it were, uh, with all the police forces added together in Britain. There are 43 county or you'd probably say district police forces. Altogether, that's probably about 200,000 police officers in Britain. Uh, so the odds are pretty slim, but uh, certainly the fact that they work 24 hours a day and they are trained to record information in a chronological, sensible manner uh, means that, to me, they, they will, uh, if they do say anything, record things properly and accurately. All right, so how many cases have you documented up to this point? Uh, it's about 385 cases now and probably about 820 
British police officers. Uh, it's not a uh, flood. It's a constant stream. Uh, may, the majority of the cases, perhaps uh, 60% of the cases on the database, uh, derive from historical cases where officers who are now retired uh, come forward perhaps 10, 20, 30 years after the incident has happened because they find out that there is a database and they want to share the story with me. Hmm. Oh, wow. So, well, actually, how many how many sightings and how many actual encounters? Well, on a, I use the Heineck uh, abbreviation system, uh, you know, nocturnal lights, uh, daylight discs, close encounters, first time, second time, third time. Uh, now, Realistically, on the database, there is only what I would call one true close encounter of the third kind, which is the very famous Alan Godfrey story from 1980, which was about three weeks before the uh, Rendlesham case that we'll no doubt talk about uh, in the show. But uh, there are other officers who are uncomfortable when they talk to me about exploring the missing time aspect. And only recently I dealt with a case where he said, I'm not sure I want to explore that, but the visual sighting I want to report, but I'm not sure. So I'll leave that for the officer to come back, uh, and if he decides to go down that route, I will obviously put him in touch with people who can guide him through that. Hmm. All right, so is there any particular part of the UK where an officer is more likely to encounter a UFO? Well, about, uh, for the first five years of the database, I didn't do any statistical work. One, because I didn't think the sample was big enough uh, to produce any worthwhile results. But over the last three years, uh, I've started to do some uh, things that I think are relevant. And one of the most uh, compelling things is that of the all the cases, the 350 cases up to the eighth report, I do an annual report each year, um, of those 350 cases, uh, the percentage of multiple police officers involved is actually about 73%, which I think is a, a remarkable figure that stands out for me, uh, that totally goes at the heart of the sceptics who will say, well, it's officers at three in the morning, tired, you know, they're mistaking uh, conventional objects, meteorological phenomena, etc. 73% of those cases, so if we look at that, that's nigh on 650 British police officers have been involved in multiple police sightings, ranging from two uh, and up to one, 24 officers involved in one case. 24? Yes, yeah, that's a uh, famous night uh, in 1993. Uh, it's, it's, it's called the Cosford Incident because it involved an RAF base at one point, RAF Cosford, um, where uh, RAF policemen as well, as well as air traffic personnel uh, in on the base uh, observed a large triangular object. Uh, but what you have there is objects or possibly two objects being tracked over many counties uh, across the country, so literally from the Midlands through to the southwest of the UK, a huge area, uh, and going on for several hours. And regional police officers in various areas and counties would be seeing the same thing as it tracked across the skies. So, yeah, in total, uh, it's about 24 on that, because I found four new witnesses last year. Oh, my goodness. Well, now, uh, Gary, police officers are generally thought of as 
uh, hard-nosed, as we say here, uh, with a real sense of logic and physical evidence. What's the reaction of a typical officer when encountering a UFO? Uh, certainly, uh, when uh, officers uh, approach me, most uh, start off by saying, if it weren't for the fact that you're a police officer, I probably wouldn't talk to you, mm-hmm. uh, but you are a police officer, so I feel a bit more comfortable talking to you. But what I'm going to tell you, you know, I feel crazy, you know, you're going to think I'm mad, and I just reassure them and say, look, there's pretty much after eight years, there's nothing that you could say that would surprise me. And, yeah. and once they know that that is the case, and, and they can literally just say anything they want, then it kind of, to, kind of makes them more comfortable to speak and uh, they come forward with some absolutely extraordinary cases. The vast majority are in awe. Some who are total sceptics become, wow, I didn't realise these things existed. Uh, Others uh, sometimes have an adverse reaction. I know of several other cases which aren't on the database where officers who have told me that officer has told me a story that he saw a UFO and they get me their telephone number and I ring them up and they say, I don't want to talk about it. They don't say it didn't happen, mm-hmm. but the way they deal with it psychologically is, I don't want to talk about it. It's a very different thing and, and certainly doesn't say it doesn't happen. But some people uh, don't react well. The vast majority are in awe uh, and they're puzzled. And uh, it opens up the possibility of of looking at the world and perhaps the universe in a, in a different way. No different from any other member of the public, I would say. Oh, very true. Now, are you ever aware of any instance in which uh, the Ministry of Defense or other government agencies have stepped in after an officer's uh, sighting or his or her report? Yes. Uh, whether it's stepped in is maybe not the right word, but I'll quote an example that came to me of a sighting in 1969 where uh, in a rural area a uh, police officer was on duty and this is I think early evening when he hears a message over the radio keep an eye out for some unusual objects in the sky so he looks up in the sky just in time to see what he describes as nine pearl white spheres traveling in an echelon arrowhead kind of formation silently across the sky. He's obviously in awe. He then hears lots of other officers uh, corroborating the fact that they too were looking at uh, spheres in the sky. Now, where it gets interesting is all of those officers, six in total, were summoned to the headquarters of the police station, the main headquarters of the force, the next day, and they were seen individually by people in plain clothes who purported to be from the Ministry of Defence, who spoke to them individually, interviewed them individually, and then at the end of those interviews, they were all individually told, this didn't happen, you are not to talk about it. Mm. So that's, to me, classic interference by an agency, which you assume is government-led. I see. So there there are several cases like that. All right. Well, perhaps we can get into that uh, more as we talk about the Rendlesham case later on. Um, I'm I'm going to – well, we're coming up on a break here, but I want to ask a question someone has written. I was going to ask the same question, but we have – Peter from Columbia, South America, has written, uh, could you please – Gary, could you please relate the the most interesting 
alien abduction case you have. And, of course, that begs the question, have you encountered any police officers who have claimed to have been abducted rather than simply yeah. encountering a crime? Yeah, there, 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 is, there is one case on the database where uh, it is uh, fairly well-known within British circles and for a time around the world, and this is the case that I alluded to at the beginning, which involved a police constable called Alan Godfrey, which occurred in late November of 1980. Um, and basically, uh, do you want me to talk about this after the break or when you come back? Well, we still have a few moments. All right. Well, basically, what happened was uh, he had an encounter, uh, a visual sighting, uh, and then the next thing he remembers is the object is gone. He's driving further down the road. He appears to experience some missing time. And then later on, he's persuaded to undergo hypnotic regression. And when he does so, to his amazement and shock, uh, this uh, account of being taken aboard a craft emerges in what is now a, a sort of an iconic taken into a room, small creatures messing around, putting equipment on his legs, the classic kind of abduction scenario. But this was 1980, and in Britain it's a significant case, because as far as I'm concerned, it's Britain's most earliest uh, abduction case, so it's entirely significant for Britain. Really? Uh, that's funny that, that that's about a month before the Rendlesham affair began. Yes, uh, his, his sighting was uh, November the 28th. And uh, obviously, Rendlesham is, is now on three weeks left. Indeed. All right, well, we're going to take our break now, and uh, we'll be right back with our guest, uh, Gary Hesseltine, uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Don't go away. Join Kimmy Rose on interviews Thursday nights from 9 to 11 p.m. Together as a community, we will embrace the challenges in life and find a way to experience heaven on earth. Spiritual teachers and Kimmy will bring you insight on how to change your life and embrace purpose. Interviews this Thursday night starting at 9. It's all about what's within you. Tune in Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern for Ask Our Intuitives. Ask Our Intuitives is your direct line to the divine. Meet the world-renowned team from AskOurIntuitives.com. Featured internationally on television and major news publications throughout the world. Highly sought after and in demand for their precision, innate accuracy, and divine ability to connect with spirit. Prepare to be astonished and hooked when they reveal answers about your past, present, and future. And connect with loved ones that have crossed over. So get your direct line to the divine, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Ask our intuitives, right here on CBS Radio's The Sky, NewSkyRadio.com. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. All day long. We're devoted to your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. With your direct connect to the stars, Lisa J. Smith, The Dr. Pat Show, Liz Souza, Barbara Mackey, Glynis McCants, The Wake Up Call, with L. Newman and Tom Force. 
Let us know how we're doing. 248 545 7685. Log on. New skyradio.com. 24 hours a day. Your spiritual well being is our concern. Awaken the extraordinary. Live the life you've imagined. Look up to the sky. CBS Radio's The New Sky. NewSkyRadio.com. New horizons, no boundaries. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. NewSkyRadio.com. And we are back, Ben and I, Paul Eno, and uh, speaking here, and Ben is with me, of course. And we're having um, a few phone line issues, but apparently uh, we're not having any problem hearing our guest, who is Gary Heseltine, Detective Constable Gary Heseltine of the British Transport Police, keeper of the uh, an amazing database of UFO sightings and encounters by British police officers. And uh, Gary was uh, being kind enough to explain the uh, abduction case, that uh, the most interesting abduction case he has run into. And Gary, I'm sorry to have interrupted. If you'd like to uh, uh, proceed with that, uh, please uh, please do so. Okay, uh, a slightly expanded version is basically late November. Um, it's a rural, small town, uh, and just towards the end of a night shift, a uh, lone police officer, Alan Godfrey, goes out in a police vehicle, uh, and basically he's going to turn up onto a, a fairly notorious estate uh, just for one la- last patrol round uh, uh, before going back to the police station. However, just as he's about to turn onto the estate and he's on a main road and he's just about to turn right, he sudden, something catches his eye further up the road. His initial thought is he believes it's a bus skidded across the road. This is about 5 o'clock in the morning, 10.05 in the morning, and bas- or 10.05 in the morning. And basically, instead of turning right onto the estate, he cancels his indicator and he decides to go and drive towards what he thought was initially a bus. However, within moments, he realises that it's not a bus that he's looking at, and as he approaches to within 30 metres or so, approximately 100 feet, he is looking at a disc, or a diamond-shaped object, not disc, a diamond-shaped object approximately 20 feet wide and 14 feet high, that's hovering off the ground, five feet off the ground in the middle of the road. It's a single two-track, uh, two-lane road, and it's there hovering, it's uh, silent, uh, the bottom half of it is rotating anti-clockwise, and the top half has appears to have some kind of darkened windows. The trees, due to the centrifugal force, are all being spun around and creating a whirlpool underneath it of branches that are swirling because it's, it's November, it's winter, and the leaves are off, etc., etc. Well, basically, he goes for his main set radio to try to let somebody know that's dead, which is common in your four stories, and then he goes for his personal radio, that's dead too. He has a clipboard with him, and he thinks, I'll draw this. He starts to draw it and draw the shape, and then what happens is he gets a bit curious. He wants to go out of the police car and look towards it. But he says a significant thing. He says, if I could have had a brick, I could have thrown it and it would have hit it. It was a real object. Mm. He gets out of the police car and he approaches it. He goes several feet towards it and then he thinks, no, I want to get back into the car. As he gets back into the car, suddenly there is an intense bright white light. And then, under hypnosis, his uh, hypnotic 
subconscious memory comes out. But in real terms and real time, he, his last memory of that event and seeing that object is suddenly, having got out the police car, he's then back driving down the road, perhaps 100 metres further on. It's sort of like a time jump. Yeah. So he's looking at the object, and then the next thing is he's driving down the road. Where's he gone? He looks into his mirror. It's gone. He goes back and he finds the circular patch of twigs and leaves that have been formed by the spinning of the object. He's absolutely in shock. He drives back to the police station, and as he does so, he sees a colleague about to go into the police station. He says to him, get in the car. You're never going to believe this. I've just seen a flying saucer. The officer goes back and confirms that there is a circular patch. Now, that was confirmed to me personally by that officer who went and saw that circular patch. And the significant thing there was it had been ra raining during the night. Where this circular patch was, i.e. the object was over and above it, it was considerably drier, which is a little bit odd. Yeah. But that was his conscious memory. All right. What happens then is that he notices that he has a split underneath his boot. And it was a brand new pair of boots. He can't explain how he got the split in his boot. And when he takes off the boot, he finds that underneath the split, on the uh, pad of his foot, there is a uh, coin-shaped, uh, sized uh, red mark. And it's, and it's irritable. So much so that he has to go to a doctor and get medication for it. It goes away. But he couldn't explain it because he didn't have it at the beginning of the shift. Huh. Now, it was the way the story gets interesting is that a week later, his story appeared in the local newspaper. And that was it. He, he got a bit of ribbing from his colleagues, uh, ribbing from some of his friends in the local area, but essentially the story stopped there. And he didn't really think anything more to it. But about uh, two months later, he was approached by a solicitor called Harry Harris who's played an important role in bringing this case to light. Because he approached him, he'd read that small article, and he'd asked him to go through it all. And he said, was there anything odd about that night? And he said, well, there was the split on my boot, there was the, uh, the, the mark under my foot, and he said, I couldn't understand why it was now ten past six when I'd left at ten to five. Mm. And suddenly the shift was over. And so Harry Harris concluded and sort of took him through it, there was like a missing 20, 25-minute period. And he said, look, if I pay for this, will you, I know some professors at Manchester University, will you al allow me to set up a session? We won't tell them what it is, we won't say it's anything to do with UFOs, but would you be willing to go under hypnosis? And he initially said, no, I'm not just doing that. But you know, over a period of time, he was a bit curious to know if there was anything to it, because he did have this missing time question. And so, eventually, three months after his uh, sighting, um, he did undergo regression. And the first session was not recorded on video. Subsequently, there were three more that were. But the first session wasn't. It was a, with a professor, and he hypnotized him. And there were Harry Harris and a couple of other people monitoring this session. And suddenly, what emerges is his subconscious memory. And the subconscious memory that's filled in is this, that basically he is in the uh, police car, he gets out of the police car to approach the object, he then thinks, no, I want to go back into the police car, just as he's going back into the police car, intense bright white light, and then he finds himself 
in a strange kind of room, lying on his back on a table, some kind of table, and there are small creatures that he describes as not alien greys, as we would probably refer to them now. He describes them uniquely as lump bolt heads because of the shape of the heads with big eyes about three to four feet tall. And there are about six to eight of them, and they're putting things on his legs, some kind of equipment. He then sees a humanoid figure who is wearing a gown uh, and some kind of school cap. Um, and this person comes into the room and appears to talk to him telepathically and telling him to kick him down. Hmm. And this is the story that fills in. Now, when this happens, he becomes very agitated during that session. And, it, and it so much so, when they start asking questions about this story, that he has to be uncoupled from all the heart monitors, etc., monitoring his, his responses, because he's going off the charts, as it were, as if something had said, you're not supposed to talk about these things. And he has an adverse reaction to it, and they, 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 they end the interview there and then, and he's taken off all the equipment. Now, they do not tell Alan Godfrey what that story was. They want to, but they think this is so unique. And bear in mind that the psychiatrists who hypnotized him have not been given any brief about UFOs. It was, he, he appears to be confused over something. Can you explore this time code and see if there's any missing memory that can fill in? Not UFO related at all. So basically, that story emerges. Everybody in the room is amazed. And then the professor says, well, let's not tell Alan. Let's go to another professor, a colleague of mine, give him the same cold brief. This time we'll get it on video. And let's see if anything else comes out or whether it's any different. And what happened was Alan went to the one. He asked, well, are you going to tell me? No, something happened. We don't want to tell you what it is. We'd rather get another sample, as it were, first. So he goes to the other professor. It's recorded on video, and exactly the same story emerges. And at various times, he's shown extreme defence to asking probing questions from the uh, from the interviewer. Uh, and then he's interviewed three months later by the same professor who did it the first time. So it went from one professor to the other, back to the first one, back to the second. Four sessions, he told the same story. Now, very few people have seen the full and edited versions of those interviews but when I started the database one of the things that I really wanted to do seeing as he lived in the same county as me was to approach Alan Godfrey and then approach Harry Harris who had those original tapes and say look I want to examine them I'm an advanced interviewer uh, for suspects and witnesses I'm good at body reading body language I want to see them and literally Harry Harris who was very reluctant to let anybody see the full uh, tapes let me do so because he knew that I was genuinely interested. So I, I ended up driving over to Manchester. He put the tapes on and I said, I'm not being funny, Harry, but I'd like to do this in private. Can you get out of the room? Because I really want to study them. And he did. And he gave me his, his living room for the entire afternoon and made copious notes. And the only conclusion I could bring was that if he's lying, he deserves an Oscar. Because all three tapes that were recorded, i.e. the second interview, the third, and the fourth, show to me remarkable uh, little quirks of body language and mannerisms that I don't think somebody who is actively lying could make up. Oh. Uh, and uh, 
I'll quote you one example. There's an example at one point. Um, have you ever seen the Flintstones? Oh, yes, they're driving the... their cars mm-hmm. and their feet are running under the cars? Yes. Yeah. Were, that, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he concept. kind of does this. <laughs> as, he, as he sees the object, he's approaching the object in the police car, and he's thinking, whoa, what is this? His feet does a little stamping motion, which is so reminiscent of the Flintstones. It was like, wow, what a strange little movement. But it's something I don't think uh, a liar, an active liar, would make up. And he does a number of these things that just struck me as, wow, this is really quite weird. But the thing was, he was consistent on each of the telling of the story. He was never led about the incident. And basically... When we look at it in relation to the Barney and Betty Hill case from 61, the Villa Boris case from 57, there are certain hallmarks that come through. And what we know since through the likes of uh, Bud Hopkins, Jacobs, uh, etc., that there are many similarities, scoop marks, uh, physical marks left on the body, a period of missing time, which is now kind of uh, part, part of the course, as it were. But not in 1980, and certainly not in Britain. So, oh, for me, it's a highly significant case. Very interesting. Okay, well, uh, th- this leads to the big question: What is really happening here? Go ahead, Ben. All right. So, uh, what am I doing? All right. So, is there a general opinion among officers as to what UFOs are? Uh, well, the vast majority that approach me. Uh, directly, who I have a dialogue with and, uh, and submit sighting reports to me, uh, are of the opinion that uh, they're certainly not terrestrial objects, they're certainly not meteorological objects, and the vast majority can only conclude that they're from somewhere else, i.e. not from Earth. Some of officers who have had remarkable encounters they can't go that far, but it's like nothing I've ever seen before or since, and it's not terrestrial and it's no conventional explanation, and it's not meteorological, etc., etc. But some of them actually don't want to reach that conclusion. Hmm. How, how do you mean? Well, what I mean is uh, that there is a, there's a, a very good case, uh, an exceptional case, uh, and it's one that is a good story to tell, uh, is three police officers, two police vehicles, parked up in a rural area in, in England called the Thames Valley Police Area, in 1979, and this is three uniformed officers, two police vehicles, they're doing what policemen do, they're talking, they're stood beside the vehicles, it's in a rural location, and basically there is no ambient light from anywhere, it's just pitch black, but they're just talking. And in the distance, very briefly, they see a bright light low on the horizon. Uh, It's there for a second, it's gone, it's too far away, they don't really think anything about it. But then, literally five minutes later, what happens is there is a it's like almost like turning on a light bulb and a huge object doesn't come from left doesn't come from right doesn't come from vertically down to the ground it just appears on like a light bulb turning on and it is a huge object the size of a football field an american football field it's shining a beam down the width of the football field it's literally a quarter of a mile away which is some 450 metres, which under those conditions is exceptionally close. There are smaller objects, flying spheres, flying around this larger object in total silence. It's scanning the terrain for literally five minutes in front of them, low to the ground, 
at an altitude of about 500 feet, which is exceptionally low, especially in the terrain. There's no other light source anywhere. There's no noise whatsoever. They're absolutely in awe. And after five minutes of going over the landscape, suddenly, like a light bulb, it's gone. It doesn't go left. It doesn't go right. It doesn't go up. It simply disappears before their eyes. They're in shock. They don't want to report it for fear of ridicule, which is a very common reason why police officers all over the world, and members of the public for that matter, or professional people in particular, do not report sightings for fear of ridicule. And that sighting, that guy there, even though it is such an exceptionally good case where there is a physical, huge dimension-shaped object with smaller objects, it's close encounter, really is a close encounter. But he will not say it's alien. He just says, it's like nothing I've seen on Earth. I can't explain it. It just appeared. It's uh-huh. real. But he, he won't say the word alien. And I, I don't press him on that. No, it's amazing. I'm afraid. I'm sorry to interrupt. We have to take a break right now. Uh, Again, uh, Gary, we'll be right back uh, behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our guest, Gary Hesseltine, British police officers and UFO encounters. Stay with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New Horizons. No boundaries. Spiritually raw. The ass whipping truth. Where skeptics meet spirits and consciousness connect. Meet the four distinctly different individuals. Doesn't mean much.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call me. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Welcome back, and we're speaking again with Gary Hesseltine, a detective police constable from Great Britain who is an expert in UFOs and has gathered a tremendous database of police uh, encounters with UFOs in Britain. And, uh, Gary, before uh, we went on the break here, you were discussing an amazing case in which a, a very large UFO uh, was seen by, and, and accompanying craft apparently were seen by multiple police officers and, uh, could, and it, it up and disappeared right in front of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, and believe it or not, that kind of scenario has started to become more frequent. Uh, but that is, uh, because of the dimensions involved, that has always been one of my favourite stories to tell. Just because of, you know, if if, if a sceptic tries to say, well, are they mistaken? Well, I'm saying, hang on a minute, uh, this is 500 feet above them, which is very close. There's no ambient light. What are the smaller objects? Are we saying that these officers have just made up this story? What's the point? They're not going to gain anything. They're not going to get financial gain. If anything, they're going to get ridiculed. There is absolutely no reason why police officers should make up and come and tell me uh, lies. Absolutely none at all. Uh, if anything, officers risk real ridicule. And if they're serving officers, the vast majority of serving officers do not want to go public with their name, etc., uh, because they fear, and it's a genuine fear, that they fear a perceived risk to their potential career in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure that's the same with professional architects that I've had who said, look, I, I, I want a pilot, I want to tell you this, but I can't do it publicly because if I did and come forward with my name, it could affect my career. These are very genuine concerns, but that then gets me onto one of my pet subjects, which is the way the, 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 the media have dumbed down, and politicians have dumbed down his subjects since the late 40s. And that really is uh, proof to me that there is a very high level, a very strong media campaign to dumb down the subject and, and on almost ridicule people who are of exceptional quality. Indeed. Well, Ben has a, um, I guess, the ultimate question for you yourself. Yes. Yeah, so what do you think they are and what do you think they want? You know, you, you having having been exposed to all these cases yourself, uh, you must have an opinion. Yeah, I have an opinion. Now, for, for many years when I was asked that question when I would lecture, I'd say, look, I really don't want to dwell on things that I can't kind of prove because that's the police officer in me is let's, let's stick to the facts uh, or circumstantial facts that we can draw from the case. But over uh, the last few years, I have begun to some to uh, to develop some theories. And, and there is a theory that I put forward. Uh, it's called the 24-legged ant theory, which may seem a bit daft, but I think it will become clear on how I view the Earth, really. Do you want me to tell you the 24-legged ant theory? Please. Long. Sorry. Right, basic, right, basically, pretty much imagine that you've... Have you got a garden? Uh, I wish you I had live? a garden. Got a, I used to have a garden. Well, for, All right, you used to have a garden. Imagine you've got a garden. A lot of people have gardens, no matter how large or small. But imagine you turn over a concrete slab in your garden and find a colony of 24-legged ants, a unique colony. They've not got eight legs, they've got 24-legged ants, and they're absolutely unique. You find this, and they only live in your back garden. So what do you do? Eventually you tell somebody, it gets in the press. 
So the press do a story and say, look, there is a unique species of 24-legged ants being found in this garden. It doesn't exist anywhere on Earth. What's going to happen? Think about it. The people who collect ants are going to go around the world and going to go, wow, there's a new species. I want to go see this place. I want to go see these ants. So they come along. And then you've then got the people who think, well, I'd like to look at the anatomy of these 24-legged ants. And so they come along as well. And then you've also got the, the pirates who think, well, I'm an ant collector and I'd love some of those 24-legged ants in my collection, but nobody's going to let me have any. So I'll go down and surreptitiously steal a few of those. Now you substitute the 24-legged ant for the earth and now that's why I think they're gone because I believe that in the oasis uh, of the vast uh, universe galaxy, wherever we are in the vast universe, I think UFOs come to us because we're a bit like the Galapagos Islands we're like the Great Barrier Reef, we have an abundance of water that is probably more than many other planets, that there is an abundance of life and fauna. And so they come here as kind of space tourists, but there are good aliens and there are some bad aliens and there are some, some a bit devious aliens. Mm. And I think the vast majority of uh, UFO sightings, uh, I think the, if they really wanted to invade us, they could have done so because they've got far superior technology. So I think that the vast majority of alien species that come and visit us come from a, let's go to the Great Barrier Reef, that's the 24-legged ant colony. Let's have a look in this part of the universe. These are a very unique kind of race and species, loads of life. We'll study them, we'll observe them, but we won't get involved. And we basically want this uh, planet to go forward. And this is why I think there is a big connection between UFOs and nuclear facilities. I do think that they have a benevolent interest in our future as a species. And that indirectly takes us on to Rendlesham because my conclusion on why Rendlesham, why Suffolk, England, is because I worked on two nuclear facilities in the Royal Air Force as a police officer. The site that was at uh, Bentwaters was identical to the sites I'd worked on that was, I can say, absolutely categorically from my experience with the number of airmen involved, the layout was identical to the sites I'd worked on. That was a nuclear facility. The big question is what was in there? They have been there. Were they uh, registered under the arms treaty? I suspect not. Mm -hmm. But for me, Rendlesham Forest, at the time of the world on the brink of the Third World War, I hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops massing on the borders of Poland because of the Polish solidarity movement led by Lech Wałęsa. The world was in a dangerous place. It was the last throes of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union thought, do we go into Poland and reclaim it like we've done it previously, like in Hungary? But it was at the time, really, at the end of that Soviet period, and the world was in a dangerous place. And I genuinely believe that U.S. wars and Rendlesham was a nuclear weapons inspection. Mm -hmm. They came for three nights to check out that facility, what was in there. They shouldn't have been there. I think in, in 16 hours on the air so far with with our Rendlesham series, and we want to include you in, in, in at least one of the, or if not more, both of the last two shows on this issue, 
there have been varying opinions and some tight lips about whether the the the, the weapon storage area actually contained nuclear ordnance and what exactly happened. Whether in the case of Rendlesherman and any other case where people have said that UFOs have uh, uh, tampered with nuclear weapons, whether the weapons were deactivated, uh, not affected at all, or in some cases retargeted, which I find very chilling. Do you have any information about whether whether information at or in your opinion whether weapons at at Rendlesham uh, or in any other case uh, such as that in any other base were retargeted? Well, I don't know about retargeting, but what I do know and hope confirmed to me is that he heard uh, on one of the three radio frequencies they had when he was out with his team of men and saw from his position, uh, an object shining a beam down in the direction of the weapon storage area, but he couldn't see a direct line of sight. But he heard on the tower frequency that the person in the high tower, 80 feet high tower on the weapon storage area, was confirming live over the air that beams were going down into the hot row, which is the storage facility for the weapons. Now, this is a very sensitive issue for anybody that served at that base, and certainly somebody of of uh, such a high rank uh, as Holt. And he will never, neither confirm nor deny. But that's really to be expected, isn't it? Because of his rank and his status. However, what I can say, as somebody who worked on identical sites and who'd been up in those towers, that the number of people involved uh, in securing uh, security of that site was definitely of the numbers that I worked in at similar facilities in the UK and in what was then West Germany. And what Uh, I can say is... I'm I'm afraid we have to... I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt again. We have one more commercial break here before we wrap it up. So uh, we'll be be, uh, right back uh, behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Stay with us. When I think of heaven Seven million black wing birds I think of flying
Geek Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. And we're back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with Gary Hesseltine, our guest. A British police official who has been a tremendous uh, compiler of, of cases of police officers uh, encountering UFOs. And we've been talking about the Rendlesham case, something we have been 16 hours on the air, uh, <coughs> excuse me, with various witnesses. And, uh, Gary, that's something of a revelation uh, that, that Colonel Halt never told us, at least not so far, about asking the commander to check the nuclear ordinance uh, when the UFO event had occurred. Well, uh, what we've said off air is that, uh, and that comes out in the script that's developed, is that afterwards, having heard on the tower frequency that were being shone in the, uh, into the weapon storage uh, hot row, the next day, or a few hours later, when he saw uh, Gordon Williams, he said to him, uh, we should get the ordinance checked. Remember the word, ordinance checked. Yes. Uh, bear in mind that, as we've already said, Holt will never go public uh, uh, with anything other than that I can come, can't confirm or deny. It's going to be that kind of stock political answer because of the sensitivity involved, and that should be understood by everybody. But believe me, this is a nuclear weapons uh, incident, and uh, basically he has said in the script that I've developed with him, and it's very clear when we retell this story, that he sees Gordon Williams and within hours of him coming back in from his four-hour trek into the woods and says, we should get those weapons checked. He does not know if that was done. Hmm. Wow. All right. Well, uh, we'll continue that on our Rendlesham series, uh, I'm sure. But uh, just uh, we're coming down to the end of our discussion here. Tell us about what you've been working on, particularly your film uh, with Colonel Halt. How far has that progressed? Well, what's happened is that I first met Holt three years ago, nearly three years ago, and I asked him quite casually at the end of a chat, uh, has anybody tried to write a script about it, worked with you on it? He said, no. I said, would you allow me to try to write it? He said, yes. And so what began was a long process of, I went away for four months, researched everything that I could get from documentaries, from books, magazines, etc., and put together in police kind of framework a timeline of events. I then went back to him and started firing questions in. What about this? What about that? He was always very cooperative. He would always respond quickly. The bottom line is that he got his first, the first draft went to him a year later. He endorsed that and says, I will go with that, which is important. We then uh, took it, uh, redrafted it slightly more. We then took it to a Hollywood producer uh, in, in, in February of last year. Uh, this year uh, at Loughlin, while I was out there for a conference, and he basically said uh, that other people have looked at this story in Hollywood, but because it's a conflicting story and lots of different stories, different nights, nobody has yet been able to bring it together as an ensemble piece because there is no central kind of hero figure. Uh, and so basically he gave me a number of ideas on how to develop it further. I have then gone away and done that. Cutting a long story short, two weeks ago, Holt was over here to make another documentary, which I was involved in. I saw him. I gave him the latest version where I have redeveloped this in light of the advice I was given. And he's ready. He's very happy with it. He says it brings it together more cohesively. He's ready to endorse that too. Uh, and basically that is going to then go back to this producer 
who has a genuine interest in the subject because he made the original Roswell film as the producer with Martin Sheen and Carl McLaughlin. Oh. Uh, it's a well, well-regarded TV film. So this is a guy who has a genuine interest in the subject and literally it's a question of going back to him and, and, and see whether he likes what I've done with it. But Holt is being cooperative. He wants his story told. And in, uh, I, I said, as we prepare for this, I said, I need you really to give a definitive statement all these years later from what you saw. And in June, uh, June 25th last year, uh, with a, press jo- a press release out, well, I put one out in the UK, and he put it out in the USA, USA, but it was lost because it was the same night as Michael Jackson dying. So literally everything became Michael Jackson for the next three weeks. But it got lost for a while, but it's now out there. And he will say that it was of an extraterrestrial origin, the objects he saw, that uh, they were uh, extraterrestrial, and that uh, he believes that the governments of both the USA and Great Britain uh, used disinformation methods to try to mess with the minds of some of the men that were involved on some of the nights to make this go away. Yeah, that's and true. That's that is true. a really significant statement. That's what they've told us. Well, we're certainly going to follow that story. And, and uh, the the Roswell film, if it's the same director, I can't remember his name, but it was... Well, he's not the director, he was the producer. It's Paul well, the producer, right. Extremely well done film. I thought it was extremely... Uh Extremely good. Um, all right. Well, we are uh, coming down to the wire here, I'm afraid, uh, and we're going to have to uh, say goodbye. But believe me, this is not the last uh, we have heard from Gary Axeltine. I think we have a, a, a source and a guest here who uh, was going to be a frequent uh, uh, presence on our show and certainly in our Rendlesham series as we finish that up in the next two months. Gary, thank you so very much. And I think we've only scratched the surface here, and we're definitely going to have you back. And I will be in touch uh, off the air. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the chance to speak, and any time you want to speak, I will gladly uh, get involved. We'll definitely be in touch. Thank you, and thank you for staying up so late. Yes, thank you. Uh, no problem whatsoever. Very good. All right, then. Uh, Gary Hesseltine, police official and keeper of the uh, amazing database PRUFOS, uh, which is, 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 of course, British police officers encountering uh, UFOs. So we're going to have to finish up rather quickly here. Uh, check our website, of course, BehindTheParanormal.com for future guests, past guests, and all kinds of podcasts of our previous shows. All right, so check out our Monday Drive Time show at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific on WON, 1240 a.m. in southeastern New England and ONWorldwide.com. Also, you can hear rebroadcasts of this show here on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on New Sky Radio. Okay, and that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week from a remote location, or try to anyway. So stay with us and have a great weekend. Don't forget, stay with us on our cosmic journey. Because you're going to be over in four hours. <laughs>